A seasoned overseer of federal grant making has returned to government. After a stint at a large services contractor, Tom Yatsko recently became the inspector general at the Legal Services Corporation, one of the more unusual federal structures. And he joins me now, Mr. Yatsko. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And let's talk about the Legal Services Corporation. It's kind of a unique animal. You might think it's part of the Justice Department, but actually it's independent and it's not precisely an agency. No, it's really not. It was set up by Congress almost 50 years ago. The anniversary is next year, so everyone's you know very excited about that. But it's technically a private nonprofit corporation chartered by Congress. It's largely federally funded, like 90 plus percent. It provides grants to civil legal aid organizations, you know, for things like you know housing, family issues, consumer issues. There are very strict limitations on what LSC funds can be used for pretty much anything controversial, you know, abortion, lobbying, redistricting, you know, things like that. It was, you know, set up to be as apolitical as possible. And there are 130 grantees all across the country, including in U.S. territories. And it's run by a board of directors of 11 members who are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. And no more than six can be of one party. So it's also was intended to be a bipartisan board. And then later on, just like some other kind of designated federal entities like Amtrak, Pension Benefits Guarantee Corporation, the Fed was required to have an inspector general. So, you know, what I do is just like what the HUD IG would do or the Justice IG, for example, would do, you know, efficiency, effectiveness, investigate allegations of fraud and so forth. And just to get back to the mission, so the grantees then provide legal services to the poor for dealing with certain issues? Correct. Uh, For civil legal issues for low-income Americans, generally 125% of the federal poverty limit and below. And yes, the grants go to state and local-based legal aid organizations that are, like I said, all over the country and ranging from very large ones in places like L.A. or New York to, you know, pretty small organizations. Can they be units within law firms that want to do close to pro bono type of work? I think they're separate legal aid organizations. I'm new enough not to know too much about the intricacies, although I'm looking forward to getting out into the field this fall and really seeing how it all plays out at ground level. But there's also, you know, a big push for pro bono work as well. And I think LSC actually funds some activities in that regard. And being a veteran of grant-making oversight, and we'll get into some of your background a little mm-hmm. bit in a moment, but what are the special oversight requirements for grants versus, say, contract-making, which is the other big spending channel? Yeah, you know, when you're, we're, you know, we're responsible for LSC oversight, and they're, you know, responsible for monitoring their grantees. So, you know, some of the things that we find are, you know, typical for any grant-making organization, that, you know, there are people... Segregation of duties, misuse of credit cards, of course, you know, not using grants for authorized purposes. LSE has a whole set of regulations at at Title 45 that grantees must follow. So, you know, those are the criteria that we use, you know, just like any grant making agency would have their regulations. Subrecipient monitoring is always an issue. You know, when you get down, you know, a level below the grantees and LSC has sub subrecipient grantees, you know, that's always been, you know, an issue everywhere I've worked, particularly with grantees. You know, they, they're very passionate about the mission and what they do. And, you know, sometimes with the best of intention, things like internal controls, 
monitoring, adopting new practices, you know, are kind of secondary or even tertiary considerations. And I think that's what we add value is kind of, you know, lifting them out of the day-to-day and the weeds and identifying not just compliance issue in a, in a backward looking way, but also like anticipating and advising them on, you know, ways to improve, ways to adopt promising practices that other agencies or organizations are using. And, you know, I think we can play, you know, a, a lot of value and not beyond just the traditional essential watchdog role. You know, that's something, you know, coming on as the new IG that I'm really, you know, pushing as part of my vision. Sure. We're speaking with Tom Yatsko. He is the newly appointed Inspector General at the Legal Services Corporation. And what attracted you to come back to government? You worked at Deloitte and Touche for a long time, and before that at USAID as the IG Assistant Inspector General. And you've been involved with SIGI and all of the other structures. Yeah. Tell us about Deloitte and what made you want to come back to government. Deloitte experience was interesting, and I really liked it. And it was, you know, I just thought it was time to try something new. And I also, you know, I was working on, you know, internal audit at Deloitte and also helping, you know, federal clients uh, with audit remediation and kind of preventing problems that GAO or, or their IG would find. But, you know, there is that this term at Deloitte called, what's your North Star? And so I just figured, you know, the IG world is what I do. And I just, you know, started seeing, okay, what IG vacancies might be out there. And LSC came into my life and, you know, I'm glad it did and everything worked out well. And, you know, it's great now to have, you know, the top job to also, you know, move beyond just auditing and evaluation, but have all the, you know, investigations and the hotline and everything. And uh, yeah, it just seemed very exciting and a way that I would want to spend the rest of my career. Got it. And what are the dollar levels that LSC is overseeing that you're overseeing LSC overseeing? LSC's federal appropriation this year was $560 million. And it it does get little pots of money here and there. So it got some pandemic funding. It got some money in the last few natural disaster supplemental grants, you know, which create a lot of legal issues for low-income Americans with floods and hurricanes and and, and so forth. So it, it ticks up above that a bit. But it's 500 to 600 million a year. And certainly the needs are much greater than that. In the last budget request, you know, uh, LSC management asked for 1.5 billion to be able to cover what was envisioned in the LSC Act back in the 70s. So the idea of the justice gap, as they say, you know, is, is, a, is a real thing. Sure. And getting back to your own career, too, you have been in a lot of places, including GAO, which is the congressional branch. It all has an oversight theme, but uh, you started out at the kind of the granddaddy of oversight. Well, a lot of people do that. You know, I'm sure you've you've heard it, you know, in the different interviews you've done over over many years, you know, people kind of go from GAO into the IG community, since it's sort of like the IGs really are almost like mini GAOs within the agency. You know, you do performance auditing, you're doing financial auditing and so forth. So you use all the skills and experience you have. It's just a little more direct because of course, you know, you're, you're part of the agency, you know, you have independent safeguards and so forth, but you, you know, you're within it. That appealed to me when, you know, when I made the jump from GAO into working at the several IGs that I worked at. And in the short time at the LSC, any horror stories yet? No, (laughs) Yeah, the investigations are always laugh or cry situations when you see, like, you know, the biweekly report of what, what everyone's working on. 
But no, the people have been great. The board of directors is very engaged. They have quarterly meetings uh, that are sort of two and a half day, really intense affairs. Some of it is publicly watchable because the Sunshine Act is one of the few federal laws that do apply to LSC. So, you know, so people can watch the proceedings there. But uh, no, no, no horror stories other than I'm really glad I did this and, and, and I'm excited to be back kind of doing, you know, what I love doing. And it's a great team, too, within the IG. Tom Yatsko is Inspector General at the Legal Services Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Excited to do it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the LSC at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. 
but it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it 
it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.